Well, today we're going to look at a few places uh, in the scripture. Um, my wife and I just came back from a trip from Israel. So for those of you that don't know, that's where Jesus was born. That's where he lived. That's where he walked. And so we went on a tour of kind of the steps of Jesus, where he would have lived, where he would have ministered. And it was absolutely fascinating, man. We, we woke up on the Sea of Galilee. We, we went on a boat in worship on the Sea of Galilee. We went to Capernaum where Jesus would have taught th- and did 13 miracles. And, and some of the, the archaeological finds that they have, man, are so incredible. The ruins are there today. And so today, here's what I thought. Last Sunday, I spoke to you from the Mount of Precipice, a place where Jesus would have been. And today, I thought I'd do that again. I'd, I'd speak from another spot that we visited. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you a quick video, because many of you have never been to Israel. Uh, but how many would, would like to go if we put a trip together? Okay, so that's a lot of hands. It's a lot of money to go, but I would encourage you to start saving now because we're planning something. I'll, I'll roll it out, the dates and all that. But uh, I think it would be so fun to go because the Bible just comes alive. It's almost like the fifth gospel. Like to go there, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then to have the geographical context of which you read the Bible, it just comes alive. I've been reading the Bible, um, which is good for a pastor to do. I've been reading the Bible... And when I do, I now, I'm like, man, I was there. And in Getty, where David hid out from Saul, I, I saw caves where he wrote probably a bunch of the Psalms. And, 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 and I'm there in the story now. It just it makes the Bible come alive. But here's a place I want you to check out, and then we'll talk about what Jesus said in this place. Let's roll the clip. I'm standing right now in Caesarea Philippi, which in Matthew chapter 4 says that Jesus lived here. And there's an incredible river, the River of Dan, that actually flows down and feeds the Jordan River. And behind me, all these caves, were, was a plethora of idol worship to every known god in, the, in, in that period. One was the, the god of Nemesis, which is the god of revenge. So people would come here to pray, intercede for revenge against their enemies. It's here that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 to his disciples standing in front of what would have been the gates of Hades where there's sacrificial worship. And he's looking at them and he says, guys, who do men say that I am? And the guys look at each other, the disciples. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, the Bible says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, which are powerful prophets, and still others, Jeremiah. And then Jesus looks at them. I can imagine a peace coming on, a quietness, a somber moment, as Jesus looks at them and says, Guys, who do you say that I am? It was in this moment that Simon Peter answered. And Simon was known to, to speak first on a lot of occasions, and a lot of times he got it wrong. He was always sticking his foot in his mouth. But he got it right on this time. He said in verse 17, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Have you ever been confused about who you were talking to? For instance, when I was young, uh, adolescence, my voice changed a little late in life. And uh, people would call my house. They'd call my house, and they would think I was my mom. I'd answer the phone like, hello? You know, and, and I used to hate it because they'd say, is this Sandra? And I, I, I'm so mortified as a young boy coming into my adolescence. I'd just lie, be like, yes, and hang up. You know, 
For years, people thought my mom was so rude. You've heard like the camera adds 10 pounds. You're like, well, I think the phone adds like an octave to your voice. Um, my wife, my wife and I, by the way, they didn't know who they were talking to. That's the problem. And so I was embarrassed. I hung up. My wife and I were at a conference and she spoke up and she's speaking a little bit. And, and, and then she goes to the restroom, she's washing her hands. And in the restroom, there's a lady that comes to her and is just saying, oh my goodness, you're so beautiful. What you said was so great. And the words you, how you said it, man, it was just amazing. We need more women like you. That's what she said. And my wife is like, oh, well, thanks so much. Well, they talk for 10 minutes in the restroom, come out, and the lady gives her her card. It's, it's Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas' wife. She had no idea who she was talking to. My daughter, Victoria, she was at summer camp last year, which, by the way, the kids are all fired up to go to summer camp this year. And my daughter comes up to these two friends, and, you know, she kind of scares them and pushes these two girls. Well, they're not her friends. They're total strangers. And she looks around like, that's awkward, right? That's really awkward. And what do you say after that? She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought, I thought you were somebody else. And okay, okay, I'll see you at lunch. I mean, he just walked away. Well, in Matthew 16, there's a lot of confusion going on about who Jesus is. Some people have heard about Jesus. They thought they knew Jesus. And they're giving answers, but they're all the wrong answers. And um, it's funny when people give an answer very confidently, and, and it's wrong. It's just wrong. And so I started searching this week, and I found a couple of the, the stupidest answers on Family Feud. I want you to watch this clip of the top three dumbest answers of Family Feud. Check it out. Talk to 100 women. Name something to Pillsbury Doughboy and your man have in common. Uh, uh, he's white. (laughs) I'm gonna go with he's white. Come on, come on, come on. Name something women wear that was obviously designed by men because it's uncomfortable but sexy. Mm. Texas, Steve. Texas. Texas. It's up there. Right there. Yeah. Okay, okay. Just tell me what you said. Texas, Steve. Yeah, Texas. <laughs> I mean... What, what? You heard of the state? The Texas. state of Texas? Yeah. T-E-X-A-S? Mm-hmm. That's a good answer, Steve. Watch it. I'll text you. Point values are double. We got top seven answers on the board. Name something a doctor might pull out of a person. Darcy. A gerbil. Like that 
Yes, 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 you said it. You said it. You said it. Let me just write out like that. That's awesome. First thing you can come up with, bam, gerbil. Name something a doctor might pull out of a person. Bam, gerbil. <laughs> Isn't that great? Okay, here's what you learn. Here's what you learn very quickly. Listen to me, everybody. Just because you give an answer does not mean it's right. Say that with me. Just because you give an answer does not mean it's right. One more time. Just because you give an answer does not mean it's right. There's a lot of people in this text that feel like Jesus is this or Jesus is that. They've, there are a lot of people that thought they knew who Jesus was and what he came to do, and they were dead wrong. And now there's a guy who's about to get it right. Okay, I want to take you on this journey. Go with me in your minds to Caesarea Philippi. There's 12 guys, 12 probably high school students. They're, they're late high school, maybe just graduated, and, and maybe, they're in, maybe they're 20-somethings. And they're following Jesus to, to Caesarea Philippi, where Philip came, and he wanted to name the city after Caesar. So he wanted to honor Caesar, but he slips his own name in there too. He's like, Caesar Philip. That's the name of the area, right? And then Jesus Christ begins to ask a question. It's it's the final exam, and it's where he would reveal who he is for the first time to these guys, his interns. And he asks a two-part question. The first question is a warm-up. The second question is the real thing. And in Matthew chapter 16, write this down in your notes, the first question is directed towards people. People. He asks the question, who do men or people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Now, let me ask you a question. If you ask this at your job, you, you, do you think you're going to like the answer? Who do people say that I am? Be careful with that because you might not like what they say. Jesus is, is kind of, he's putting it out there. He's like, hey, what are people talking about me? What are they saying about me? So the first cup, I mean, the first question is a Gallup poll. And, 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 and then they answer. One guy raises a hand. He's like, uh, survey says John the Baptist. Eh, that's the wrong answer. John just died. So apparently some people are saying John the Baptist and they probably believe in a very fast reincarnation because he just died. The second, the second question or the second comment, someone raises their hand and says, uh, survey says Elijah. Eh, wrong answer. He's a great prophet, but the wrong answer. Another person raises their hand and says, uh, 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 some people are saying uh, that you're, you're, you're Jeremiah, come back from the dead. Eh, three times. Now, I want you to notice something, that these are great prophets. These are great men. This is not meant to be a slam. This is meant to be flattering. Okay, understand this. What they're saying is me- it's meant to be flattering. But how many know it's very possible to misunderstand with the best intentions? You can misunderstand and have really good intentions, but still be wrong. Here's Jesus. And, and a lot of people like Jesus, but they didn't worship him as God. And, and in our text, we're going to find out who he is for the very first time. Now, fast forward to today. We have a lot of people that think a lot of things about Jesus, don't we? A lot of people, the only time they use his name when they hit their, their thumb with a hammer. Some people say he was a good man. He's a good prophet. He's a good teacher. Hey, okay, listen, you have to understand Jesus falls in one of three categories. Number one, you think he's a liar. Number two, you think he's a flat-out lunatic, like he lost his mind, or you think he's Lord. You believe who he is. 
Because you cannot believe that he's a good teacher if you don't believe what he taught. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. There's not a bunch of ways. There's not a bunch of religions that go to the same place. Jesus is the way. He is the Savior of the world. So you either believe he's a liar, like he just lied about everything, just, or he's a lunatic, he was a madman, or he is actually Lord. Because to be almost right on this is to be completely wrong. To be close is not good enough when it comes to who Jesus is. So the first question is, who, who do people say that I am? The second one is, who do you say that I am? Write down you. Who do you say that I am? And can you imagine in this moment, as I stood there on that hill, I imagine with all of the pagan worship behind me, Jesus is relaying his, his, his godship to them in this moment. Who do you say that I am? And that's a powerful question because in the Greek, which the New Testament is written in Greek, the word you has enormous stress. Who do you say that I am? And now how many know that in every group there's a designated loudmouth? Come on, raise your hand if that's you in the group. You're the, you're the designated loudmouth. You're always the first one to speak. Gerbil, you know, just the first one. Even if it's wrong, you're saying it with confidence, right? Peter answers very specific. He gets it wrong on a lot of times. He gets it right on the nose here. And in the Greek, it's interesting because he uses the word the four times in the Greek. Here in English, it says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In the Greek, it says, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. It's very specific. And what what, what Peter is saying is, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the long-awaited Messiah that we have been waiting for for generations. It's you. And in Matthew 7, 16, verse 17, Peter's, uh, Peter's there. He's standing there, and everybody, it just goes quiet on the hill. Everybody's looking at Peter, and then they, their eyes look to Jesus, and Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Here, in other words, here's what he said. I know God revealed this to you because you're not that smart. <laughs> and, then, and then we have this moment where, where, where it's just a hush. And all of us are saying, well, that's a big deal. We all would say that too. You have to understand, this is the first human in history to ever say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first time that we're, we're acknowledging His Sonship, His Godness, and not many people understood this at that point in His ministry. And Peter didn't come and say, hey, well, we took a survey and people say, or we took a vote and we all think that you are. He said, declarative, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, listen, there's a lot of people looking for salvation in a lot of places today, in a lot of different places. And they're confused and they're thinking, yeah, well, just whatever's truth to you is truth to you. And that's your reality. And they think truth is relative and, and, and it doesn't matter how, as long as you live a good moral life, that you're, you're good somehow. Listen, Peter hits it right on the nose. He says, you are the Christ. You are the answer to the world. You are the Messiah. This is who you are. And in verse 18, Jesus blesses him. He says, blessed are you, Simon, Peter. He says, blessed are you. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, everyone say rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Write this down. First of all, the question was for people, then the question was for you, and we need to understand that for people that don't see this yet, we need to pray for them. Pray for others. Pray for them. 
if people don't see this yet, you don't despise them. You pray for them. If someone has blindness, you don't curse their blindness. You pray that God would open up their eyes. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul would come along a few years later and say, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you are called. There's a calling of God on every single life. So we pray for others. And many of you are praying for your friends and family members and cousins and and coworkers and students at your school. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord and invite them to church. Just pray this week. Pray that God would do that. Amen, everybody. Okay, watch this. Verse 17, he called him Simon. Verse 18, he called him Peter. Changed his name. He said, upon this rock, there's a play on words. Upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. What changed in Peter? Peter didn't change. His name changed. Why? Because his confession changed. It was his confession of faith. Instead of believing in we're going to work our way into salvation according to the Old Testament, the law, he declaratively said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's here that Jesus reveals who he is for the very first time and that he is the answer to the world. I was a youth pastor for several years my wife and I pastor youth, and students are awesome. They're funny. They're not that smart. So you get, you got, you got a lot of issues going on in, in student ministry, which, by the way, we have a lot of great students, smarter than the ones I... I'm kidding, because some of them are, they come to our church now. They become great men and women of God, I'll just tell you. Every Wednesday night, this place is filled with a bunch of students. You should bring them. <clears throat> but here's my point. When I was youth pastor... I only really had one message. It's Jesus. To every problem, Jesus is the answer to every equation. And I found out that students need to really know Jesus can forgive, he can, he can, he can save, and he can bring purpose. He can forgive, save, bring purpose. Well, now I'm a senior pastor, if that makes any sense. I'm a lead guy at a church, and now we pastor adults along with students. And I found out that even though people grow older, they need the same message. Now, now we have adults, single adults and married adults and CEOs of large companies. And I find out that, yes, they've grown older and, yes, they have more money, but their need is still the same. They need the message of Jesus. That is our only message. That's all we've got, ladies and gentlemen, is Jesus. It always has been Jesus. It always will be Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and he'll be the same on Tuesday afternoon when you need him the most. Come on. He is who we need. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And we need to let people know he can forgive, he can save, and he can bring purpose. It's who he is. Jesus, in our text, picture this. Jesus makes a radical statement to 12 guys. Listen to me. 12 guys who are nobodies. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're going nowhere. And he says, guys, I will build my church. And the disciples step back and say, excuse me? There's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's 12 of us. You're going to do what? I will build my church. Awesome. It's a great idea, Jesus. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying there's 12 of us. And one of them is... You know, 
You picked them. And then this word church comes into the Bible for the very first time. The word church, it's not even really a Bible word per se. We borrowed that from uh, uh, the Germans, uh, the German language. The church means ecclesia. Ecclesia. Here's what a church means. Church means, it means a gathering or congregation. It's not a place. It is a gathering or congregation. Jesus said, I will build a gathering. I will build a congregation. And it's going to be amazing. And it's going to change the world. And the disciples again are like, you know there's 12 of us. That's a small group, Jesus. And Jesus says, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so amazing. Even the gates of Hades itself, death will not be able to stop it. My death won't stop it. Peter, your death won't stop it. John, your death won't stop it. Bartholomew, your death won't stop it. Judas, your death is going to speed it up, actually. But... I'm going to build a gathering of people that is centered around the simplicity that I am the Christ and it's going to take over the world. We hear that and we're like, yeah, but wait a second. There's 12 guys here on the backside of a desert. It didn't look like much and I don't think they were too fired up about this. I really don't. I really don't feel like there was... Amen, Jesus. Come on. I don't see that at all in Scripture. They're they're in the middle of nowhere. And we always think that it's a place. Like Jesus is going to build a church. It's a place. Now, Jesus moves in spaces and places. We thank God for spaces and places. But that's not what he predicted. He predicted. He didn't predict a place. He predicted a people. He said, I will build my gathering of people. And it will be so amazing. And Jesus made the promise, he's kept the promise, and even today, even though there's different expressions of his ecclesia around the nation, around the world, there's Baptists, there's Pentecostals, there's everything in between. It looks different, we dress different, we sing different, some have holes in their jeans, some have three-piece suits, and it all all doesn't matter. We We all believe different things about other things, but here's the deal. You bring us all together in a room, here's one thing we can agree on. Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of the living God. It's true. What Jesus promised, he delivered. And it's exactly what he he predicted to 12 guys in the middle of nowhere. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are privileged to be a part of what Jesus is building. Now, it's amazing how it even, this message of Jesus made it past the first century. Like, it doesn't even make sense. He says this to 12 guys, and now the church of Jesus Christ is around us. Every nation? Jesus, here's, here's, here's God's great plan. He tells him this. He has a few more things to do on the planet Earth. And then he dies. He raises from the dead. And he appears to over 500 people. And then in Matthew 28, 19, he says, All authority has been given to me. Really? All authority? Yeah, all authority has been given to me. Look at it in your notes. <clears throat> Therefore, go and make disciples of all Nations. Really? All nations? How in the heck are we going to get to all nations? Can you imagine this? We just kind of read by the scripture real fast. But you have to understand, there was no Uber. There were no planes. 
How are we going? This is going to be a worldwide thing. Really? I want you to go into every nation. And really the word nation is every ethnic group. Go everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you. And that's why basically our, our, our growth track is so important, because it, it's following these things. It's know God, and then teach you, and then connect to your purpose. We do all that through our growth track. And you can join the church the first Sunday of next month. We have our Step 2 class today during our, between services. And then he says this last phrase. He says, watch this. I love this. And surely... Can you picture the eyes of Christ looking at people? Surely I am with you to the very ends of the age. And then he left. <laughs> I will never leave you. Boom, he's gone. It's like he ended the meeting. He's like, hey, everybody, close your eyes. Bow your heads. Let's pray. And then he left. I will never leave you. He's gone. This, <laughs> are you seeing this? <clears throat> Here's Jesus. He, he does something amazing in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> this disciple, he's, he's dead. He raised from the dead. He says, go and wait in Jerusalem, which we were there. We were there. And I stood in what they believed was the upper room. In Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descended upon them, they began to speak in other languages as God gave them a sign, like, hey, I'm with you. I'm empowering you to be my witnesses here on planet Earth. And, and in this moment, Luke records this because he's a doctor and he's investigating all this. And in an upper room, they, are, they have been given the authority, the power now to tell people about Jesus. Watch this, watch this. Then they hit the streets and they tell everybody. This should have ended with the death of Jesus because Jesus died. It's over. Like the message, it's over. It, sh- it should have ended. And then Peter stands up. He doesn't preach like the most seeker-friendly message. Acts chapter 2. Read it. It's, a great, it's the first sermon of the early ecclesia. He stands up because people think they're drunk. He's like, guys, we're not drunk. It's 9 in the morning for crying out loud. And he preaches. And here's basically the three points of Peter's sermon. Number one, here's, here it is. Number one, you killed him. God raised him. Now say you're sorry. That's his whole sermon. You killed him. God raised him. Now say you're sorry. This is not 100 years after. This is 40 to 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and in verse 29, he's preaching to all these people. And they love David in the Old Testament. And he's like, hey, you guys remember David? They're like, yeah. You remember how he died? Yeah. You remember how he's, he was buried? Yeah. Remember how he stayed dead? Yeah. Jesus didn't. We saw him. And, and, and really, he, we, we, he's Lord. He's Messiah. It's crazy because do you know how many people were waiting outside the tomb on Easter Sunday morning for Jesus to raise from the dead? As they're all standing around and they're like, 10, 9, 8, 7, cue the band, 6, 5, confetti, ready? You guys ready? Zero. Nobody was at the tomb Easter Sunday morning. Do you know how many people expected him to raise from the dead? Zero. Do you know how many people were expecting to take the message of Jesus to the nations? Zero. There was nobody that believed what he taught. At that moment, 
When Jesus rose from the dead, it changed everything. It fueled the church. And these guys began to tell everybody about it because they saw it with their own eyes. And thousands of people began to flock to the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, because Jesus said, I will build my church and nothing will be able to stop it. Not my death, but my resurrection will only fuel the message that I've been proclaiming. And then they get comfortable in Jerusalem. Now, we were in Jerusalem. We spent five days there. It's amazing. Man, it's just incredible to see the, the, the temple where that was and, and all these other cities, the city of David and Mount Moriah. Oh, man, it's, the Bible is coming to life. But Jesus is about to break their paradigm. And he's coming because they huddled down in Jerusalem. They got real comfortable. And, and watch this. The church was growing, but it wasn't moving. How many know that the devil is not scared of a growing church? He's afraid of a moving church. They were growing in numbers, but they weren't doing what Jesus said to do. He said to go to all nations. So God says, hey, this isn't, this isn't the plan. I want you to go to all nations. Imagine yourself having a conversation with Jesus. <clears throat> so you're up there and Jesus is like, man, they're not doing what I told them to do. And what do you think we should do? And you're like, I don't know. And Jesus says, I need a guy who's willing to travel. And you're like, okay, I know a couple guys. Peter's good. And, and uh, John's pretty good. Um, and, and Jesus says, how about Saul? Are you kidding me? Jesus, he's a Christian killer. Like he kills Christians for a living. He, he goes into cities, imprisons them, takes them to prison. And it's, it's a horrible, that's a horrible idea. With all respect, Jesus, I think we can do better. And Jesus says he's perfect. And in Acts chapter 9, there's a guy named Saul who would, he would imprison Christians. He thought he was doing justice for God by taking these people and destroying their ministry and their lives. <clears throat> and God knocks him off of his, ho- his horse. There were some people Jesus came to, and he's like, hey, follow me. And they're like, okay, follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. Not Paul. He had to knock his behind off his horse to the ground. Is there anybody in here who's stubborn enough that God had to knock you off the horse? Come on. Like you had to bring you to rock bottom? That's Saul. And he left everything and would become one of the greatest missionaries this world has ever known. But God does this, and, and even though they, everybody thought he was unraveling things, he becomes a Christian, a bona fide, legit follower of Jesus. But nobody believes him. They're scared of him. They think he's faking. Like, stop playing. Stop playing, Paul. He comes in their, their meetings, and he's now, I'm one of you. Like, if Osama bin Laden got saved, how many would receive him into the church? <laughs> right up this, yeah, sure, sit by me. That's, that's the equivalent. Then James steps in. <clears throat> James is there. James steps in. James, James is nowhere to be found. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's nowhere to be found or heard about until after the resurrection. Okay, let me ask you a question. How hard would it be for you to convince your brother that you're God? How hard would that be? Because Jesus did it. He's nowhere to be found before the resurrection. After the resurrection, when he saw his brother, who he saw die, and the cross wouldn't have been way up on a hill, they crucified people at eye level. He saw his brother take his last breath. They took his limp body, put it in a tomb. And on Sunday morning, what? 
there was nothing that could ever change James' mind after he saw that. He might have doubted him before, but he never doubted him again. Every single one of the disciples, except Judas because he killed himself, and John, the revelator. Let let me just tell you, John, um, every one of them died a horrific death. Peter was crucified upside down. They took... They took James, took him to the top of the temple, threw him down, said, renounce Christ or die. And he said, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he threw his body off and they came with clubs and they finished him off. Every single disciple, listen, college students, listen to me. There's a lot of people who will die for what they believe and think is true. You cannot convince me that all of these men died for what they knew was false. There's no way in the world you can convince me. At some point, as they were being beaten, as they were being burned alive, as they were being crucified, one of them would have said, okay, we made it up. Stop. Not one of them. Why? Because they saw him. They saw him raised from the dead. They saw, and they were like, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I've seen the risen Savior. The greatest, the greatest part of Christianity, the greatest thrust was not just it's the resurrection, but it's also these eyewitnesses who saw him and then would give their lives for the gospel. And Paul says, okay, We need to take this to the world. And so they put up a map in the boardroom. And they say, he says, you guys take Jerusalem and I'll take everything else. (laughs) He goes around the Mediterranean realm and he's just, he starts, he starts building these ecclesias everywhere. And he builds a church. He's writing letters. They start to beat him. They're imprisoning Paul, but that didn't stop him. And God would let Paul write half of the New Testament. Now we turn to Acts 15. And there's an argument because the Jews are there. And this was a Jewish thing at first. How many are Jewish? Jewish descent. Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. I think we have like a couple. Yeah, there's a couple here. So this wasn't even for us at first. It's just a Jewish thing. Acts chapter 10. People start getting saved that are non-Jew. Gentiles. And then there's an argument. All the Jewish people are like, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. We can't just let these non-Jew people get saved. We got to have them be a part of the law. Like they got to do some stuff. So they thought about it and they're like, hey, what, what would deter them? I know, adult male circumcision. You want to get saved? Adult male circumcision. So what happened? Here's what happened. We had women and children flooding the doors of the church. And a lot of guys in the parking lot were like, I need to think about this. And the wives are like, come on, honey. I don't want to miss the worship. I don't want to miss the music. Just give me a second. Okay, just give me a minute. And Paul stands up and says, guys, I've been around a lot. 
And what Jesus Christ is doing is amazing. It's not just for us. We all were lost. God saved all of us. Now this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is a whole wide world thing. And James stands up, the half-brother of Jesus, and says something so powerful, which is the statement of our church. He says, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. We as a church never want to make it difficult for unbelievers to come to God. Can I hear an amen, everybody? And it's funny, there's a group in Antioch, not this Antioch, but ancient Antioch. They're all waiting to see, like, what's the answer going to be? And they come, and they're like, hey, no, no circumcision. And they start celebrating. And they're in the streets singing, like, celebrate no circumcision. <laughs> they're excited. And then Paul goes on to do some more ministry. And then he gets arrested. And he goes to Rome. And Christians start being killed for their faith in Christ. Paul is under the the care, if I could say that very, very loosely, and very sarcastically, actually, of Nero, who was an evil, evil ruler. Nero was known to kill Christians, put lambskin on the back of Christians, and set them loose in an arena and let the lions loose. He would impale Christians, listen to me, for his parties. That means his stake takes a stake and sticks it through them. And it would, he, would, he would make it just the right size so they would slip slowly until it reaches their heart and kills them. As he would put tar in their hair and he would light these Christians, these would be his torches to light his wild parties. It's there, the tradition says that Paul would would write his last letter to Timothy, and then he would be beheaded for his faith in Christ. If you read the Book of Martyrs, <clears throat> secular historians depict how all these disciples died. Peter, James, John. All of them were tortured. And Paul. And on this side, you got to think, how cool would that have been to get in a time machine and go back in time before Paul is killed, before the disciples are killed, and look at them and say, guys, it worked. It It worked. What you have given your lives to build. It worked. Now, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, we are gathering in the name of Jesus. Our lives have been rescued by the amazing grace of a risen Savior. And every year, Paul, the story is, is read. And Caesar is nothing but a footnote. To the story of the magnification of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, it worked. It worked. All because of what Jesus said 2,000 years ago in the middle of nowhere to 12 guys. I will build my church. And he did. And he is. And you and I have been been invited to be a part of the greatest movement on the planet. Listen, you will never do anything more significant in life than to be a part of what Jesus is building. 
his church. It's a gathering of misfits, all called by God, rescued and forgiven, and now empowered to reach the world. Think about that next time you want to stay home and watch the Warriors game instead of going to church. (laughs) I'm teasing. But not really. Let me close with this last verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. This is Paul, the one who gave his life. Let nothing move you. Always, always, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor is not in I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be over to overcome it. Come on, if you believe it, give the Lord a hand. Here's my last question. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is?